you brought your Bibles with you, let me invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 3, and we'll be reading there in just a moment, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The title of this morning's message is What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. A young man was appointed president of a bank, was intimidated by his new responsibilities. And so he went to his gray-haired predecessor to seek advice. And he asked him the question. He said, sir, what has been the secret of your success? And the older man replied, he said two words, right decisions. The young man said, well, how do you make right decisions? The man said one word, experience. And the young man said, how do you get experience. The man said two words, wrong decisions. (laughs) But there's a better way to make a right decision and one that's far less painful. And that way is in knowing and doing the will of God. But how can you know his will? Well, 3,000 some years ago, a man named Solomon, a king and the wisest man who ever lived, wrote these words in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. He said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. In those two verses, there are three conditions and one promise. You can almost see them by the phrases that are there. There are three conditions. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, condition number one. Lean not on your own understanding, condition number two. In all your ways acknowledge him, condition number three. And then the promise is clear, and he shall direct your paths. Now some translations have not direct your paths. Some of them say he will make your paths straight. So let's look at this promise briefly as we begin to be sure we understand what he's saying. What is he saying? Well, the basic meaning behind this promise is the idea of going in a straight line. And the Hebrew language is very visual, it's very expressive, very colorful, and so it uses often concrete objects and images to describe abstract ideas. And so if I was finishing this pulpit and I didn't like this this line, it wasn't straight enough or smooth enough, and this pulpit's been well used, and, uh, and I were to, to sand it, which I'm not going to, but if I were to sand it down, I'd be sanding it to make it more smooth. Or maybe it wasn't quite straight enough, and I sanded it to take out one of the ridges or something like that, and that's the way this word is used. It's used in that prophecy concerning the future Elisha, who was John the Baptist. He would make the mountains low or level, and he would make the rough places smooth. And that's the same concept that's being used here. When I sand something down, if I'm manufacturing something and I sand it down to make it straight or make it smooth, I'm doing it so that it's right and so that it pleases me. In this sense, the word for going straight also implies going in the right direction. If God makes your paths straight, then he is directing you in a way that is right or in a way that is pleasing 
to him. And that's why you have the different translations. Some are more literal than others. In some places, he will direct your paths, and others, he will make your paths straight. The bottom line's the same. The good news is that God has guidance that he wants to give you and me, and we can know it. So here's the promise, and it's in your handout. He will guide you into his will if you will do three things. And all we're going to do is take each of those three conditions and look at them carefully to understand what Solomon is saying, inspired by the Spirit of God, to you and me about what to do when we don't know what to do. First, God guides you. When you abandon all other sources of security and happiness in an all-consuming relationship with him. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. We want to know what the will of God is. God wants you and I to know him. And sometimes in our efforts to know his will, we forget the most basic thing, and that is that God wants us to know him. You must trust him exclusively. The Bible says here, trust in the Lord. Solomon saying him and no one else. The word trust here is used to describe the act of relying on someone out of a sense of security. This one makes me safe. This one takes care of me. This one looks after me. There's a verse in Deuteronomy, you can just jot it down if you want to look it up, but this word's used in that very sense. Deuteronomy 28 verse 52. Listen to this phrase and you'll capture what I mean. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down. You see, it's just a phrase, but it's the same word for trust that's used in Proverbs 3, 5. He is the wall. He is the place of safety that you and I are to place our trust in and no one else. So, so we're to trust him exclusively. It means I'm counting on him only to take care of me. Now in the Old Testament, David and the psalmist understood this. When you read their words that they used to describe God, you capture this one in whom they are trusting exclusively. Listen to some of the ways they describe our God. My confidence, my counselor, the defense of my life, my deliverer, my fortress, my help, my hope, my keeper, the mighty one, my mountain, my refuge, my rock, my salvation and my savior, my shepherd, my shield, my stronghold, my tower of strength, and my hiding place. Do you know him like that? Do you have a relationship with a God who are those things to you? We are to trust him exclusively. We are also to trust him entirely. Solomon says to trust him with all your heart. It means that no part of your heart can be trusting in anyone or anything else. There are no safety nets when you trust him with all your heart. There's no plan B. If God doesn't come through, I'm sunk. That's what it means to trust him with all your heart. It has another sense that it's used here. It's also used to describe someone who is lying flat on their face 
in total subjection to a ruler, a king, or a master. Someone who has, in effect, displayed their faith, their trust, their confidence by resting fully their weight in front of the one in whom they are trusting. To be face down before him. Have you noticed that when people are in a crisis and they feel absolutely helpless, that's when they turn to God. You know, those of you who are old enough to remember after 9-11 when the Twin Towers were attacked and destroyed, some researchers estimate that nearly half the American population made it to a religious service in the days that followed. Now, why did they do that? They did it because they felt a sense of helplessness and they felt their need intensely. Now, shortly after that, they stopped attending church. They stopped going to religious services. Why? Because they didn't feel that need anymore. You see, the rest of the time, we think we got it. The rest of the time, we think, I can handle it. I can make my own decisions. I don't need God to help me in my life. But Solomon's saying, don't wait for a crisis to make you feel helpless. The truth is, you are always helpless. Trust him now with all your heart. There's a second condition. How can you tell if your heart and your trust is complete and total? How can you tell if your trust is wholehearted? You can tell by your response to the second condition in this passage. And here's my summary of it. Number two, give him the right to make your decisions. Give him the right to make your decisions. He says in the second part of verse 5, and lean not on your own understanding. Now, there's four reasons why that I want to tease out of this, this verse. There are four reasons why we should give him the right to make our own decisions. Here's the first one. By itself, your mind is an unreliable source for determining the will of God. By itself, your mind is inadequate. Let me give you an example. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, you can just jot it in the margin, the Bible says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word underlying that, pornia, describes any kind of sexual activity that occurs outside of the context of a one-man, one-woman covenant marriage. That's pornia. Any kind of sexual activity outside of the context of that marriage is pornia. In January this year, ChristianMingle.com hired a researcher, and they did it with a Jewish dating service, in case Christian Mingle's not working for you. They did a statistical survey of 2,500 Christian singles, and they found these things. And this is startling, and it is disheartening. Listen, 63% of the singles they surveyed said they would have sex before marriage. When asked if they would move in with the right person after the appropriate amount of time, when you, when you added up all the answers, 87% said they would move in with someone before they married them. 87%. So over 60% said they'd have sex before marriage. 87% said they would move in without marriage. Now, here's the part that puzzles me. 
when they were asked what was the single greatest social threat to the institution of marriage, you know what they said. Nearly half of them said that the greatest societal threat to marriage is infidelity. Infidelity. Now, you practice absolutely no sexual restraint before you marry, and then you expect your partner to be faithful. Duh! You see, this problem is as old as the story of Adam and Eve. God says, leave it alone. Don't touch it. It's no good for you. In that moment, all Adam and Eve had to do was not lean on their own understanding. But the devil comes along and says, think for yourself. Don't let God think for you. You can figure it out. It looks good. It tastes good. It must be good. Do you honestly think that you know more than God? If I'm going to surrender to him the right to make all my decisions, I've got to believe with all my heart he knows a whole lot more than I do. This is what God says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your your thoughts. If I'm going to know the will of God, I cannot, I must not lean on my own evaluation or perception of what the answer is. You know, the guidance computer that sent a man to the moon had 64K of memory. If you're not a computer person, let me just tell you that nowadays that's not much. In fact, I'm holding a two gigabyte thumb drive right here in my hand. Two gigabytes. There is more memory capacity on this little thumb drive, which is not a big thumb drive anymore. Two gigabytes, I mean, you can get a thumb drive that holds 64, 100 and something, 200. I mean, you can get a really big thumb drive. But this little thumb drive today that holds two gigabytes of memory is 33,000 times more powerful than the computer that put a man on the moon. There's a computer right now that was, that was put together two years ago, the most powerful supercomputer in the United States. It's called the Titan. It can perform 17.59 thousand trillion calculations per second. Now, let's say you could put all of that in your head. Put all that computing power in your head. And and accompany it with every book on science and history and math that's ever been written. And, And if you could travel to every place in the universe, and if you could go to every university and earn their highest degree in every field, The wisest man who ever lived would say, it's not good enough. Lean not on your own understanding. When you and I recognize that, we've got to surrender our right to make our decisions and give it to him. There's a second reason we should do this. The greatest source of revelation from God 
is the Bible. It's the greatest source of revelation. Now, what does that mean for you and me? That means good news. It means that the vast majority of God's will for my life has already been revealed. He's already given it to me. The greatest bulk of what I need to know on this side of heaven about God, about myself, about the world that I live in, I can find it in the Bible. Now, one of the verses that has the greatest, simplest, clearest way of making this understandable to you and me is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And what does it say? It says, all Scripture, literally, it means all the writings or every one of the writings and it is describing the scriptures. Now, because of that, I, I hold a position on the scripture where I will say that I believe that all the words are inspired and every word is inspired because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, all of it. And then it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, if you've been around a while, you're a Bible scholar, you've heard and you know and you've read for yourself that the Greek word under there is one word. Given by inspiration of God is one word, theonoustos. Now, theo, you can probably guess, means God. Noustos means breathe or breath. So what is he saying? He said, all Scripture, breath of God. All Scripture, every word, all the words, is the breath of God. Is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so because of that, I believe and use the word inerrancy to describe the Scripture. It is a faith statement. I can't prove that to you. I can't make that real to you. You have to come to a conclusion in your own heart and mind that this is what God's Word says about itself, and I'm going to put my trust in what God says, and I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. The inerrancy of Scripture. Now, verse 17 gives us the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, you need to hear this. He says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is that saying? It's saying that everything I need to know to please God, to serve God, to be what He wants me to be for Him on this side of heaven, He has provided for me in His Word. That is the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I'm not opposed to education. In fact, I'm not opposed to books. Just come down the hall here and I'll show you why. I'm not. I'm not opposed to learning and and studying and, and improving your mind and growing in every way that you can. But listen, if you can't get a certain kind of degree, if you can't go off to a seminary, you still have provided for you everything that God wants you to have in his word. The greatest source of revelation from God is in 
the Bible. Well, there's another reason we should let him have all of our decisions. And that leads me to my next statement. God will never lead you to do something that contradicts his word. He will never lead you to do something that contradicts your word. What do you do when the Bible clearly says what to do and you don't want to do it? What do you do? You can read in black and white in the English text. You can have a scholar explain it to you, and it still winds up being the same thing. And you don't want to believe it, and you don't want to obey it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard statements like this in conversations with people. Listen, and these are not lost people. These are often Christians. We love each other, and so they keep on living together. God's Word says that's wrong. They said, but we love each other. So they keep on living together. Here's someone that says, I don't love my spouse anymore. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And so they'll abandon their wedding vows. You know, your wedding vows a promise that you're going to be there five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now. It says nothing about why I don't feel something anymore for that person. It is a promise. It's a vow. Sometimes I'll hear someone say, we've always done it this way. And so it doesn't matter that God's Word says, don't do it that way. They'll keep doing it that way and sustaining a man-made rule or ritual. Listen, we are not called to agree with the Bible. And I'm afraid that as Baptists, too many times we say, do I believe the Bible? Yes, I believe the Bible. I agree with the Bible. Everything it says. We're not called to agree with it. We're called to obey it. We're called to do what God directs us to do. And then the fourth reason. I've got to surrender all of my decisions to God. Is that when you are serious about knowing the will of God, you also become serious about knowing the Word of God. You see, if I want to know what His will is, and He's given me so much direction in His Word, it is the Scripture that I need to search and that I need to learn. The two go together. So many times we want to know the will of God. I just want to know the will of God. And God is saying, I want you to know me. I want you to know my word. And we want a shortcut. So guidance flows from a relationship with God. Trust in the Lord, he says, with all your heart. Guidance is found in the word of God. He says, lean not on your own understanding. Allow the word of God to challenge you. Allow the word of God to guide you in your decisions. But then guidance is applied to your specific situation by the Spirit of God. Here's my summary of the third condition for God's guidance found in Proverbs 3.6. Here's my summary. Number three, develop a habit of discerning the presence of God no matter where you are and who you are with. He says, in all your ways, acknowledge Now, the word ways there describes a journey or a road. It's a journey or it's a road. Do I have, Lisa, do I have something up here that I don't know about? Maybe not. I'm talking to myself. These? Oh. Oh, well, look at this. Okay. Well, very good. Here we have relationships. 
In all your ways, thank you, David, in all your ways, acknowledge him. You have a journey that you are on in your life called relationships. You see that, Danny? And this is a, a signpost, and so that's part of your life. You have a road, a journey that you're on. It involves relationships with family, relationships with friends, relationships with dear ones, loved ones, romantic relationships. It involves everything. You have a journey that involves relationships. You also have a journey that involves happiness. How many of you are on a happiness journey? You're not? You all want to be unhappy? Hey, all of us are wanting to be happy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happy. <laughs> We're, we live in a nation that's all about that. And so you and I are involved in a journey to happiness. We want to be happy, and God wants us to know his joy. And then there's another area of our life, and these are just representative, but you have also a work life, a work life. So you have a professional or work life, occupation. Sometimes that may be something that you're really happy with. Sometimes it's not something you're really happy with, okay? So we have a work life, a, a life that involves the pursuit of happiness or a journey that we're on or a road that we're on to happiness, and then one that involves relationships. We could add other ones. You could have a, a financial way, a road that you're on. There's so many different ways that you have that. So in all these journeys of life, if I want to, God to guide me, he says, in all your ways, all your roads, all your journeys, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths what is he saying sometimes people come to me and they're in a hurry they're impatient i just want to know what god wants me to do next and i would say not so fast here's what god is saying to that person about how he guides all right you ready three things first obedience to the will of god listen to this obedience to the will of god is a lifestyle not a series of occasional decisions you understand that? If I'm not interested in God's will for me in my relationships, then how can I expect him to God, guide me on my pursuit of happiness? If I'm not interested in what God says to me about my work and what I do at work, how can I expect him to guide me all of a sudden in who I should marry or what my relationship should be like? You see, we are to acknowledge him in all our ways. It is a way of life, not just one decision, not just two decisions, not a handful of big decisions over the course of your life as a Christ follower. It is an everyday activity to acknowledge him in all your ways. Secondly, Christians are called to be filled with and keep in step with the Spirit. When you trusted Jesus Christ, whether you fully understood it or not, the Holy Spirit of God came to live inside you. And at that moment, your spirit was instantly, permanently, eternally restored and reborn. And your human spirit now has constant contact with Almighty God. The question is, are you living or walking by that spirit? And you see, that is something we grow in. That's something that's acquired. But we are taught in places, and I've got those scriptures in your handout, but we're taught in places like Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And literally it's saying, but be being filled, constantly, passively, allow the Holy Spirit of God to have directional control in your life so that He can speak to you, and you will comprehend that He's speaking, and you will do what He says. Be filled with the Spirit. In Galatians 5, He says, walk in the Spirit, 
Later in Galatians 5, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. So what, what's happening here? There's a very real relationship with a living God that is afforded to every believer whereby he can prompt you, guide you, speak to you at any moment during your day. And you and I are called to be open and sensitive to him in the midst of this relationship with the living God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, in every journey of life, in everything that you're doing, acknowledge him. That word acknowledge means to know him. You know, earlier in Proverbs it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, depending on your translation. You know, the fear of the Lord is what's meant by this third thing. To acknowledge Him is to be aware of His presence and responsive to His inner promptings. You say, well, how do I become aware of the presence of God? Well, first of all, it's an act of faith. You know, God, I know that you're here. Now, when you're talking to someone, you're having a discussion with them, or you're at work and you're doing something like that, if you just start talking to God out loud, they may, they may carry you off. And I'm not saying don't do that, but you're going to confuse a lot of people. But in the course of your conversations with people, or you're at work, or you're doing whatever you're doing, do you talk to him? Do you acknowledge that he's there? The fear of the Lord, it says, is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. I've talked about this before, but the word fear, we're taught to fear God, and, and over 400 times in Scripture, we're, we're told not to be afraid of anything, fear not, but we are told to fear God. And when you're afraid of something, some of you this morning may be struggling with a phobia, and when you're afraid of something, what happens? Well, all of your attention and all of your energy and much of your emotional life becomes focused on the thing that you're afraid of, doesn't it? I mean, it consumes you when you're afraid, when you're or worried, or whatever word you want to use. But you're consumed by it. All your energy is focused on that. Now, when you are afraid of God or fear God in the biblical sense, what happens? All of your attention, all of your emotional energy, everything is focused on Him. And that's what He's calling us to, is a lifestyle where we recognize his presence everywhere we go and so guidance from God flows from a relationship with God it is found in the word of God but it's always going to be applied by the spirit of God in specific situations as you and I go through life as we go through our day out of the context of that relationship with him he says he will direct your path what a rich promise. Familiar verse, but one that can change your life. Let me ask you, the very first condition that he gives, that you trust in the Lord with all your heart. If you're a believer today, if you're already a Christian, you trusted Jesus Christ, and you know he lives in you. When he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, are you cultivating that relationship with him? Do you really believe that? You believe what God's Word says, that if somebody doesn't trust in God, that they're going to go to hell, they'll be separated from Him for eternity? Or do you believe that somewhere in the world, there are people that get to heaven without trusting in the Lord? 
You see, that's the kind of thing that he's calling us to, is a clear, unmistakable, no-holds-barred trust in the Lord with all your heart. And brothers and sisters in Christ, are you trusting him? Are you, are you depending and relying on your own understanding, or do you immediately turn to Scripture? to understand what does God say about this? What has God already said about this decision, this thing I'm dealing with? And then as you read the scripture and God applies it to your situation, do you recognize the presence of God speaking to you and guiding you? Lean not on your own understanding. Some of us are going through life, we're calling all the shots. We may have trusted Jesus for eternity, but we're not trusting him for tomorrow. And we're not trusting him for today. And God has not called you to live that way. And then when that moment of crisis comes, dear brother and sister, you will be grossly unprepared because now you're in a position where you have no other recourse but to trust Him. This is not a momentary act. It is not a collection of decisions that you make over the course of your life. It is a lifestyle. And then if you have never trusted in the Lord, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the gospel, the good news that we preach as his people is that Jesus Christ came into this world to rescue you and me from the enemies of our soul. You and I are separated from God by sin that we have committed and that we have inherited. And that sin is destroying you from the inside out. And you can say, well, I'm doing just fine without God. I'm making all my own decisions. I'm calling all my own shots. Well, just wait. Typically, there will be a moment in that person's life where you will discover you don't have it all under control. And you desperately need him. But don't wait for that. Our God is in the heavens. He rules. He reigns. He knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows your heart. And your sin is separating you from that precious, loving Father. And in the, to deal with your sin, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, was crucified on a cross. And while he was being, putting, being put to death by Roman soldiers, that at that moment there was a supernatural and an eternal transaction taking place where God was taking Jesus who knew no sin and made him sin on our behalf. He took all of our sins, Peter says. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of our sins in himself. And he took the punishment that those sins deserved. Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus suffered an eternity of hell in a finite period of time on your behalf. And then God raised him from the dead as proof that sin could be forgiven and that death could be conquered. And every person here who's put their trust in Christ, their sins have been forgiven. Their sins have been washed away literally by the blood of Jesus. And they have eternal life. Not because they're good, but because Jesus Christ has come into their life and lives in them. 
The moment you put your trust in Jesus, in his work, in his rulership, when you put all of your trust in him, the Bible says you'll be saved. And this morning, I want to invite you in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. In a Baptist church, we call this an invitation. It's a time where we respond to what God has said to us. And so what is God saying to you? If you've never trusted Christ, we'd like to help you. And so when we stand and sing, there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. And I'm going to ask you to slip out of the pew, whether you're in the balcony or down here, and come and take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I want to be saved. They'll answer your questions. They'll share scriptures with you. You can read it for yourself. But you can be saved today. You may have a need just to pray, a burden for yourself or someone that you care for. And if that's the case, you can just bow your head and pray there in the pew, or I invite you to come and kneel at the front. Uh, you don't have to, but I know that when I visit other churches or when I sit under other people's preaching, God speaks to me. Sometimes it helps me to act on what God has said. You can come and just pray and then go back to your seat. But how will you respond? What is God saying and how will you respond to him? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for teaching us through the wisest man who ever lived. You gave him that wisdom, Lord, that we can't lean on our own understanding. And so, Father, I pray for that person right now who is ready and can find no reason why they should wait. They're ready to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, as we respond to you, through your Holy Spirit, would you guide us, each of us, into how we should respond in this moment. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.